0: WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com.
1: Hi, this is Elmore Leonard. I'm, I'm listening to Film Sociology, and, and uh, it's, it's a real program. It's great.
0: It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the Multiplex in the Art House what's new on video and streaming, and you might also hear about some dead people we like. We don't have time for dead people we don't like. Anyway, this is Film Sociology, where you'll find out what's the next cinematic marvel, It was unbelievable! and what's just a movie. SHUT UP! MY GOD! YOU HAVE NO FREAKING lie! Okay, here's your host and my dad, Matthew Sosie. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew The show is available on iTunes, and like all of the podcasts here at WFYI, are available on Spotify. Well, friends, we got through another week. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying sane. Hope you're being good to one another. And uh, hopefully you've been watching some good films that are new or at least new to you as well as falling back on old favorites. And uh, later on, we will get to the grab-a-pencil portion of the show as well as what I've watched over the week. Not a lot, but just enough to, you know, whet your appetite. But first, I am so excited to be sharing this. I had an interview last week with musician Chuck Lavelle, uh, currently uh, the music director and piano player for the Rolling Stones, among others. He's recorded with everybody from the Allman Brothers to Eric Clapton to the Black Crows, Train, and many, many others. There's a new documentary out called Chuck Lavelle, the Tree Man, and it's chucklevellthetreeman.com. You can also go to Chuck Lavelle's uh, website for all the information. It's available on digital as well as on demand. And uh, it's a mixture of film sociology and the Blues House Party, I guess. But I had a really, really fun, epic chat with Chuck Lavelle to talk about his music career, as well as the documentary Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. Here it is. Enjoy. So, Chuck, I know everything is like pre-COVID, post-COVID. What was, when did uh, Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man, start filming and and then when did it finish? And was COVID uh, a blockade as far as getting the film out uh, and available?
1: Well, it was a about three and a half years in the making, and uh, we kind of finished it up uh, in late uh, tw- uh, 2019. So uh, that, that's kind of where we were at with it. We wanted to get it out um, in tandem with the Rolling Stones tour that was planned in 2020, but, of course, uh, the whole world, got nixed on on any touring so, including the rolling stones so you know the master plan didn't quite work out like we all wanted alan and i and my filmmaker alan forrest and myself uh talked about you know the options. should we try to wait to put it out and finally we said you know what let's let's just go with it uh, we don't know how long covet's going to be around um the longer we wait the you know the the more danger we have of Uh, Losing interest in it, so let's just go ahead and do it and that's what we did.
0: How did you and Alan get uh, get together? I knew
1: Alan from um, an artist that he was helping out Uh, I think his name was Gerard um, And he was a blues guitar player and Alan reached out to me. This must be oh ten years ago uh, to play on a session for that artist which I did, and and, uh, Alan was kind of managing this person and helping him out. And uh, so we remained friends after that. We didn't talk a whole lot in between. And then fast forward to uh, when we were touring with the Stones, uh, gosh, I think it must have been 2016 or 17, and we were coming to Las Vegas to do a show there, and Mick got laryngitis. And Alan happened to be... In Las Vegas, doing another project, and he had called me to say, Hey, maybe I could come to the show. And I said, Yeah, I'd love for you to come to the show, but there's not going to be one because Nick lost his voice. And so we got together anyway. And in the conversation, uh, he asked me what I'd been doing, and I told him I was entertaining the idea of uh, doing this documentary. And we had actually in- interviewed a couple of other uh, prospects at that time. And he said, "Really? Well, listen. Would I have any chance of uh, making a bid for this? Or, of you know?" And I said, "Well, sure. You know, we could, we can open it up for discussion." And over the next oh, three months or so, Alan just proved to us that he really wanted the project. That he wanted it worse than any of the other guys that we had interviewed, and was willing to go the extra mile uh, to make it happen. And so um, we made the deal, and. Um, Alan was just great during the entire process. I mean, he got a lot of the historic footage that we used, of course, but he shot just about everything else we did himself. And that was a lot of work. And uh, he just did a fabulous job. And then, you know, we got to the editing, and we had all these interviews, something like 80 different interviews, and we had all this raw footage. And I said, Alan, how in the world are you going to make sense out of this thing and make a story? And he said, you know what? This is what I do. Just trust me. And so he went into his basement for like six weeks to do the editing and working eight to twelve hours a day, and voila, there it was. So I was just really pleased with the way it turned out.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm sure filmmakers would say the same thing about musicians and vice versa. I don't know how you know all those songs in your head or, you know, all the all the editing techniques. I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it um, it, it was it was a process. You know, it was. Uh, a lot of fun working with Alan. He's a smart guy. Uh, he had a really a strong handle on everything that he wanted to do, and uh, we proceeded accordingly. And it was it was a really enjoyable project. I mean, uh, lots of fun, lots of laughter along the way. But I I have to tell you that you know once we made the deal, and uh, Alan said, Chuck, you realize you got to make your best efforts to. Um, get these interviews to, to make these contacts and I thought oh lord oh god what have I done <laughs> you know, now I've got to make the ask of all these people and uh, we wound up with a pretty good tag team methodology uh where I would either send an email or or do a phone request leave a message talk to management whatever and, and just kind of paved the way and say, listen, this is what we're doing. Would there be any chance that you might be interested? And then Alan would do the follow-up about all the logistics and the particulars, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it worked out in the end.
0: Well, yeah, I think it did pretty well. Since you, had, I remember some of the Talking Heads—that's uh, lower capitals, uh, lowercase letters—of a, uh, you know, Dicky Betts, Eric Clapton, the Rolling Stones. Uh, I, th- I think it turned out pretty good for uh, folks to talk about you. Uh, I'm sure the time was tight, but uh, but mission accomplished.
1: It was indeed, and there was a lot of uh, you know the time put in to make these arrangements and to get. On people's schedules uh, where it would work out and uh, one interesting thing that I'll pass along Alan has uh, I'll call it a trick but it's really <laughs> a very smart piece of equipment and that is you know usually when people are doing interviews you'll see the person being interviewed looking off to the side to wherever the person asking the questions is so you know you get kind of an angular shot uh, Alan has a device that is for lack of a better word is kinda like a periscope so that he sits near the camera uh, looking at this device and it has a mirror and the mirror shoots his face right dead center of the lens of the camera. And so that way people are talking to the camera but they're talking to Alan and it makes for a much more personable uh, exchange and uh I thought it just was brilliant. you know it really helped uh, I think a lot of uh, of the interviews to come to life and to look like they were talking to the audience more or less.
0: agreed, agreed you You mentioned earlier uh, Mick getting laryngitis in Las Vegas it, when it's a night like that, you're not going to do an entire evening of keith tunes <laughs> no. you're, gonna, you're not going to turn no. them into the very expensive winos. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, wouldn't that be a fun option? Uh, no, it's,
0: I'm sure the the person with, the rolling. yeah, I'm sure the person with laryngitis yeah. wouldn't be thrilled.
1: No, he would not, and uh, it's not the Rolling Stones without Jagger up there. That,
0: you're, that's true. That is true. Um, getting back to the film, it's, it's Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. Um, I I really, really had a fun time watching this film, Chuck, and and part of it was hearing your story, and, and then I kept, as I'm watching it, wondering when— it was going to intertwine in with your, your nickname, with the tree man. And, and it all intertwines together like roots of a tree, pun intended.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Matthew. Um, you know, that is my other life. I'm equally as passionate about forestry and the environment uh, as I am about music. Uh, I, I love learning. Uh, I consider myself a student of forestry and environmental um, issues Uh, And, you know, that when we, of course, there's three themes, as you know, to the film. First is the musical career. Secondly, of course, the forestry and environment connection. And third is the love story between my (laughs) wife, Lane and I. Yep. And uh, so, you know, we wanted to blend those things together to try to keep it balanced, you know, not to go too far with uh, one, either one of the three themes. And I think Alan really did a magnificent job in, in keeping that balance.
0: Agreed. Um, going, actually bringing up your lovely wife, it's now, what, 48 years? That is correct, yes. 48, uh, 48 years. 48 years. How often does she get to go on tour with you?
1: Rosie uh, not only tours with me all the time these days, but she, with the Stones, uh, she actually works backstage. Uh, she, uh, we joke that it's she's one of the chief cat herders <laughs> just to get people get people from a to b you know if people have interviews or if they uh, you know we we have wardrobe of course and makeup and all this and their schedules to be met so she helps everybody uh meet those schedules and get to where they need to be on time and it's wonderful you know we we spend a lot of time together we get to be together on tour and then when i do my solo shows uh she comes with me and Rose Lane, as you can probably tell from the film, is a true fashionista. Uh, she's always, always been into wardrobe and clothing and style, and so she always helps me uh, get dressed appropriately for whatever event I'm, I'm
0: doing. <laughs> and number one, Chuck Groupie.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose so. And I'm number one, Rosie Groupie. Sir. There you. Go. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> uh, it, it works out great. Yeah. yeah the... we, You know, we we have so much fun together, Matthew, Um, and and as I said earlier, we, you know, over 48 years, you go through a lot of things together, and I think the more you go through, the stronger you get um, in touch with each other, the more respect you have for each other, and then the more fun you have with each other.
0: Well, this fall for me will be 22 years, so uh, we're, we're chugging along as well
1: well done, well done,
0: thank you um going back a little bit um to to your music what growing up what uh what piano players were you listening to as a as a young as a young student
1: well uh, you know very young in our home uh my mother loved she was a piano player, and that's really how I got started was listening to her. She wasn't a teacher or a professional, but she played, and I loved listening to her play. And she had records by Roger Williams, Ferranti and Teicher and, you know, kind of those sort of uh, standard artists, I should say. And so, you know, that that filtered in. But by the time I started playing myself and being in bands, uh, it would be Leon Russell. Uh, it, it was, I, you know, some of the early, earlier artists like uh, Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis. But later... As I mentioned, Leon Elton, uh, Nicky Hopkins was certainly a huge influence. Um, you know, growing up in the South, uh, the Swampers, Barry Beckett, a <laughs> great piano player that played on so many of those uh, records out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Uh, another artist, uh, piano player from that area, um, Clayton Ivey, great player. Uh, and, oh, I could probably name a thousand more, but those are some names for
0: you. And didn't you see Ray Charles in concert when you were 13?
1: Oh yeah, how could I not mention Ray? Uh, that, that was a huge uh, event for me. I went along with my sister, uh, who had a date, my older sister, uh, to see Ray Charles, and she kindly dragged me along or let me uh, let me come along. And it was such a magnificent performance, you know, not only Ray himself, who was unbelievable, but the band you know you had Mm. fathead newman on sax you had billy preston playing organ in the band billy was young at the time and ray gave billy a a special part of the show where he came out front and sang a song and danced and was just unbelievable the ray yep you know so it was just a big picture really but ray of course stood out above everyone but uh it did it changed my life i left there because i was i was playing guitar i was playing keyboard uh, I was starting to, I think I was on the verge of starting my first band, The Misfits, and I thought to myself as I was walking out, man, if I could ever move people like that, you know, not that I would necessarily play that kind of music, exactly what Ray was doing, but if I could ever be in a band that would move people like that, that's what I want to do.
0: And uh, wasn't it about 15, you just basically walked up to the doors of Muscle Shoals and uh, let the, let your presence be known?
1: Well, kind of, sorta. I did have a <laughs> contact there, a great guy named uh, named Marlon Green. Marlon was an engineer there, but Marlon also wrote songs, and uh, you know he kindly had me work on his first solo record. Uh, he was married to Jeannie Green, who was uh, on. She she was a background singer and was on songs by Elvis, recordings by Elvis, and and a lot of the other artists that went through Muscle Shoals. She worked a lot in Nashville, so Marlin was my contact, and he would tell me, "Okay, hey, listen, this session is going on. Uh, if you come up and just kind of hang out around this hour, uh, the door will probably open for a break, and then maybe you can come in, meet somebody, uh, you know, maybe sit and play something to see if people listen to you, you know, <laughs> that right. kind of thing." So that's the way it started, and he was very, very gracious to me. And there were others in Muscle Shoals as well uh, that were very encouraging to a young uh, 15-, 16-year-old keyboard player.
0: And your first session, I believe, was with uh, Freddie North?
1: Yes. um, David Johnson was the engineer and, I think, producer as well on that song. Uh, Freddie North was a a wonderful rhythm and blues artist uh, and... I forget who the songwriter was on that song because later it became a hit in the country idiom for Johnny Paycheck. Mm. But uh, anyway, Freddie was the first one to record it. I played Hammond B3 on it. Uh, Great track. And, you know, the record came out. It was the first record I was ever on. So, you know, what a thrill. I mean, it didn't have my name on it, but I could look at that thing and I knew that I was in those grooves of that vinyl. And it was a big, big deal. You know, of course... Nowadays, everybody can record in their home or in their basement or wherever. It's just uh, a different day these days. But back then, it was a very big deal to be able to get into a proper studio uh, that had decent equipment and had musical gear and to work with the other musicians and to make it happen and then to see the results with it holding that record in your hand. And lo and behold, uh, that song became a hit, Uh, you know that was the other big deal for me was hearing it on the radio mm-hmm. uh, thinking wow man you know i'm on that it's coming over the radio that's fantastic
0: <laughs> have have you ever seen the film uh, that thing you do yes oh, yeah. it, it's like that the first time the first time you hear your song on the radio the 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 energy that they yep. get out of that
1: yeah exactly tom hanks was of course the uh, director uh, the, the manager of the band yeah, and everything yeah Great stuff, great stuff yeah that 's exactly right. That was the kind of uh, feeling
0: <laughs> so um how much how much se- was were you then able to do session work, and did you have a band at that time uh, in the in the evenings?
1: Well, I'll tell you what happened. I realized because Muscle Shoals had so many studios, but it also had so many great, great players that were older, more experienced, and I realized that they were going to really get the uh, the cream of the uh, of the recordings and that I would be probably second, maybe even third fiddle uh, for session work. And, you know, I thought to myself, I wonder if there's an alternative. And that's when I uh, turned my eyes to Macon, Georgia, and Capricorn Records. I had heard about Capricorn. I did have a contact there through Paul Hornsby, um, who was in the precursor of the Allman Brothers Band, a band called The Hourglass, and that Mm -hmm. was Greg and Dwayne, um, Johnny Sandlin, and and Pete Carr, and and Paul Hornsby was in the band. And uh, so, you know, I said, I want to go check this out, because Paul was already going to go over there. Paul was very much a mentor to me. uh, We had a band together called The South Camp in Tuscaloosa, uh, and he was very helpful to me, taught me a lot, encouraged me. And so when he got called to go to Macon to be a producer and to play on records, um, I said, i got to go check this out. So I got in my uh, Oldsmobile, 65 Oldsmobile Cutlass Station wagon, uh, drove over to Macon, Georgia, saw the -the state-of-the-art studio, uh, saw a booking agency called Paragon, so they were booking bands as well. Uh, Then, of course, the offices of the record company, Capricorn, and that's where my future wife-to-be was working. When the doors opened, there were two beautiful girls there. Uh, this beautiful black girl named Carolyn Brown, and my future wife, Rose Lane White. And uh, so, you know, I was so impressed with all of this, and they were encouraging to me. They they said, "Listen, come on over here. We'll find you something to do. You know, we'll we'll put a band together, you know, for guys from Macon and some guys from Tuscaloosa." And that's kind of what happened. We put a band together called Sundown that was half Tuscaloosa guys and half Macon, Georgia guys. And we did one record, and we we toured a little bit, not a whole lot, mostly regionally around the South. Uh, but during that and subsequent uh, couple of years, I began to get session work. And Paul would hire me to play. Uh, Johnny Sandlin would hire me to play. And then eventually we... Put a band together to back up alex taylor who was james taylor's elder brother who was on capricorn records toured with alex for a couple of years uh, did his second record for the label uh, eventually that sort of played out and then uh, phil walden had signed uh, dr john to a management contract uh, and mac of course mac revanac is dr john's real name uh mac had just recorded in the right place which was the lp and of course that had the hit record right place wrong time and so he needed a band uh to go on tour with and it was suggested that the same band that back up alex uh go ahead and audition for mac and we did we got the gig and so it was really a matter of just climbing up that ladder uh after the dr john experience is when I got called in to do the first solo record of Greg Allman's, which was called Laid Back. Yep. And that led to some jam sessions with all the Allman Brothers coming down. And uh, that led to me being asked to, to join the band.
0: But before I get to the Allman's, I, you, I'm glad you brought up uh, Dr. John as well as Greg. When When it's a keyboard band leader... How is the dynamic as far as what you're able to contribute and i mean do they give you, do they give you a nod to let you solo here, or what do you do here and i i am I'm, I'm setting this up to get to the solo within the solo i guess in jessica <laughs>
1: well well um here here's the deal as you know, and most of your listeners know dwayne had his tragic motorcycle accident in seventy one nineteen seventy one yep uh it was just it affected everyone, not just everyone in the band. But Dwayne was kind of the spiritual leader, if you will, of uh, all the acts that were on Capricorn, and it was a huge blow to the entire community. And then the band, the Almonds, had uh, some uh, contracts to fulfill on concerts uh, that were on the books, and they went out as a five-piece band without any replacement, and you don't replace Dwayne Allman anyway. So, and Can you imagine the pressure on Dickie Betts? Because he had never played slide guitar before, and now he had to carry uh, the whole thing on his own. Uh, They came off of that little short tour in, I guess it would have been uh, sometime in maybe spring of uh, 72, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted, just drained, and that's the reason – They wanted to take a break, and that's the reason Greg wanted to do a solo record, just do something different, you know, Mm -hmm. career-wise. And so uh, during these jam sessions that I mentioned uh, in the course of recording the laid-back record, you know, I was there. uh, What was I going to do but join in and have some fun and play? And I think what what it did for everybody was took it in a totally different direction. You know, as I said earlier, you don't replace Dwayne Allman on guitar Um, I think that would have been a mistake to, you know, even if you had a brilliant guitar player, maybe someone with a big name, uh, it just wouldn't have been the same. But to take a different instrument and take it into a slightly different direction, that's what made sense. And it it gave everybody a comfort level. Uh, Of course, it was really exciting for me. I mean, I was playing with an established band and they were really talented and great and um, they had wonderful songs and and so you know they the door was wide open man they said listen you know if if, if we're going to get you in the band we want you to play i mean don't don't be a wallflower you know get out <laughs> there and do what you do
0: mm-hmm. so
1: that's the way it went and of course uh, you mentioned jessica uh when that came up um and we were discussing the arrangement and everybody agreed that I needed a vehicle in there. This was the the star instrumental of the, as as you know, the Allman brothers pretty much had an instrumental on every record they did even after uh, my tenure with the band. And so it was part of the scenario and Jessica was the one this time. And uh, it was just a great vehicle for a piano. And I, I did my best to, to step up to the plate
0: on it. Well, and, and I, I should let, I, I I stole the term from Billy Bob Thornton, who was also interviewed in the documentary. I, I love that term because, it, as he mentioned, it's like a solo within a solo if you're into Inception, uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, somewhere in the world, I guess I should say, just a reminder to listeners, you're listening to a Film Sociology uh, here at org. I'm talking with Chuck Lavelle, a keyboardist extraordinaire and subject of the documentary, Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man, and I, and somewhere in the world, on a radio or a satellite radio, your work is being played right this second. <laughs>
1: well, you know, that that's a good feeling. I, I've been so blessed, Matthew, throughout my career, and, You know, to have some degree of success with one artist or in one band would be brilliant. I think any musician would be happy with that. But uh, the great joy of my career has been that one thing has led to another, and I've been able to work with uh, just a a wide range of very interesting and diverse artists.
0: Well, and I know um, there was kind of, you know, as you mentioned, life, life is kind of ups and downs. I know there was the combination of the almonds taking basically just stopping performing and touring and then Capricorn records folded. But then some guys from England got in touch with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There there was some stuff in between uh, but I'll, (laughs) I'll tell this, I'll tell this story, which I, you know, I guess spoiler
0: alert. uh, If you want, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Uh,
1: no, I don't mind. Okay. Uh, so uh, my wife had inherited some land, um, This is in 1981, and I began this interest in looking after the land, and so I began to study a little bit, go to the library, check out books on land use, uh, talk to other people, go to meetings and seminars, just try to soak in anything I could. And at the same time, my musical career was kind of uh, the faucet had shut down. Um, I had a little trio. I was playing clubs. The phone wasn't ringing for... Uh, you know for session work uh, as you mentioned Capricorn Records had gone bankrupt uh, so we were kind of just hanging in the wind there and I came home one day rather frustrated and talking to Rose Lane my wife and I said you know Rosie I'm never going to quit music I'm always going to play but the phone's not ringing and the action's just not there I'm tired of playing these little clubs and You know, I'm very interested in what's going on with the land. I want to learn more about it. Maybe I should just kind of let things go where they want to go and just focus on the land for a while. And she listened very patiently and said, well, that's interesting, Chuck. But guess what? The Rolling Stones called you today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Absolutely true story. And, you know, at first I thought she was pulling my leg, uh, but she said no. I'm telling you the truth. Here's the phone number. There's the phone. Go dial this number. (laughs) And I did. And um, within about several hours, I got a call back from Ian Stewart, uh, who, of course, was a great piano player himself and who was Mm -hmm. really one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones that wound up uh, doing a a number of duties with the band, including logistics. And so he was the one that made contact um, after I did that initial call. And I did have a, a club show that weekend, and I said, it's like a Thursday, and I said, uh, well, Stu, can I, you know, I'm honored, I'm flattered. Yeah, of course I want to come up. Can I come up on Monday? i got a little gig this weekend. He said, we'd really like to have you there tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, what could I do? I, I called the club. They understood. They were very understanding. The, the next day I was on a plane uh, to audition.
0: Nice. And And eventually you got the gig, right?
1: Correct. I didn't get it immediately. The audition was great. I mean, it was supposed to be one day. They kept me there three days. Uh, Everybody, I I loved it. I I got the feeling that they enjoyed what I was doing and contributing to them. But uh, the truth was Ian McClagan, who, of course, was a keyboard player in The Faces with Ronnie Wood, had done the previous tour. And, you know, so the odds were on Mac, on Ian and uh you know Stu finally called me back and he said listen you know the guys love what you did and they it was a kind of a debate within the band but they've decided to to keep mac on for this tour and um we'll see what happens so uh, you know i was disappointed naturally but the the band went on tour in the u.s they came to atlanta and did an unannounced show at the fox theater uh stew called me up he said would you like to come up and have a little bit of a blast And I said, yes <laughs> i would so I, I went up i i sat in on you know three or four songs with the band at the fox that went really well and that's also started the friendship between mac and myself ian mclagan and myself uh, he was just so sweet and gracious and uh so we stayed in touch after that but uh for the summer tour the following year 1982 uh, Stu called me up and he said, this time you're on, mate. Uh, they, they, everybody wants you. Come on. And, and at the same time, uh, Mac had made some commitments to Bonnie Raitt. So, you know, thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Mac. And thank <laughs> you,
0: Stones. Well, and I think part of this business is obviously the ability, knowing folks, timing and patience and a good reputation
1: Well, I would agree with all of that. You know, my dad, uh, old sayings was a big deal around our house, and one of the things my dad used to say is, you make your own luck. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, What does that mean? I think it means learning how to be, well, one of the things it means is learning how to be in the right place at the right time, uh, knowing, you know, when to speak up, when to listen, and, um, you know, that That old saying has served me very well uh, in in my entire career. So, um, yes, and and the other thing is the five P's, uh, uh, proper preparation prevents poor performance. (laughs) I love that one. Uh, So, you know, be prepared, do your homework, um, and then when you get into the situation, be gracious. uh, Do a lot of listening and make your own luck.
0: What is what's the backstage environment like at a at a Stones concert or Stones tour?
1: Well, it's a lot different these days. Uh, when I first joined, it was more wide open. There were more guests allowed in the backstage area. It was very elaborate. Uh, my heavens, the money that was spent on the backstage was just insane, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, it, it was it was great for for the times it was it served its purpose i suppose in in certain ways but in reality it was overkill it was just way too much and i think it to a degree it sort of distracted uh, from uh, the preparation of doing the show so these days it's more locked down uh more individual uh, you know i share a dressing room with daryl jones we do our thing in our dressing room. You know, we we, mm-hmm. we mingle between dressing rooms, of course, uh, and there's a certainly a feeling of camaraderie. But everybody has duties, you know. Yep. Uh, I I pre- I prepare the set list. I do a draft of the set list. I look back at what we played in any given city the time before we were there, or both two times before we were there. Uh, try to make things make sense. Um, I get up with Nick. Uh, right after the sound check, and get his thoughts on it. Uh, if Keith, uh, you know, run it by Keith, and if Keith has any comments, and we all finally agree on that. Uh, so, you know, these things take time, and you're focused uh, on on your business at hand.
0: There's always a lot of. Are you are you always trying to put in out of tears or shine of light, just so we can hear your piano in those? <laughs> You know,
1: it's a it's a tough thing. There, there's <laughs> such a body of work. I mean, yep. there's no you know you you could do an eight hour show if you wanted to. <laughs> uh, and the other the other reality, look, you know, we're um, all of a certain age these days, and so you can't do that. Well, you know, it's not practical to do a three hour show anymore. So right. we're kind of. At the two-hour gate now, so you you got to look at how many songs can you get in in two hours, and then you got to look at the icon songs because look, the, the hardcore fans. They, I get comments all the time uh, over the net on on the various different groups that follow the Rolling Stones, and I take a lot of heat from that because oh, he does a set list, and uh, I'm tired of hearing Jumping Jack Flash. I'm Tired oh, of hearing start me up. a reckon. I could never hear, you know, be happy if I never heard it again. Well, that's the hardcores, and I understand that. You know, they'd love to hear uh, uh, Soul Survivor, you know, or, or um, the entire Boogie. Or yeah, the right.
0: entire Exile album. Of course. Yeah.
1: And, and I get that. But, but can you imagine the tens of thousands of people that walk out, you know, that would be upset, I should say, if you – if they didn't hear Jumpin' Jack, if they didn't hear Start Me Up, if they didn't hear Can't Always Get What You Want, you know, right. if they didn't hear Satisfaction,
0: I, it's, uh, I so think it's,
1: it's a challenge.
0: I think it's the ratio of diehards compared to people who have who had not seen the, the Rolling Stones in concert, and that's with any that's with any group really. Um, you know, whether it's Eric Clapton or the Allman Brothers, certain, certain songs sort of have to be done or done in a different way or varies. But yeah, I mean, I think the number of people who have never seen them before compared to somebody who's seen them 20 times and are burnt out on Jumping Jack Flash, uh, that's, I think that's just how that is.
1: Well, it is, uh, absolutely. And, and there's, you have to appreciate the genre as well. Now, you know, an Allman Brothers band is more in the jam band genre and, they're kind of known. Those bands are known for not doing the same set uh, or, or the one, the same song, you know, in a three, four, five uh, concert period. Uh, so, and I get that, and that's that's the way it works for for those fans and for those bands. But with a band like the Stones that have had so many hit records, like yep. that, you know, it's that, a different story.
0: And uh, what, what, how was the experience of uh, touring with Eric Clapton?
1: Oh, man, it was just so wonderful. Uh, he was a special guest on, I think it was maybe five, maybe even six concerts of the Steel Wheels Tour nineteen eighty nine. 1989. Uh, they set him up next to me on stage, and we with the song that we did, I think it was every time, was uh, Little Red Rooster, so a yep. great blues song, uh, Howlin' Wolf. And uh, we had a, a very nice musical communication, uh, you know, conversation. Between the two of us, you know, I certainly it was all about Eric, but I tried to throw a lick in there every now and <laughs> then, let him know I was there, you know. So anyway, I get home from that tour, and there's a message on my answering machine. Hello, this is Eric Clapton calling Chuck Lavelle from Hong Kong to see if he might be interested in playing some shows at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> uh, yes, I would be very interested in that.
0: Eric.
1: <laughs> so. Uh, I went in, I, uh, again, I tried to do my homework. Uh, I, they sent me some information about what most of the set would be, most of the songs. Uh, great band. Are you kidding? Oh, uh, yeah. Steve Ferrone on drums, Nathan East on bass, and Andy Fair, Fairweather Low on guitar, and, and Katie Kassoon and Tessa Niles singing, and Ray Cooper on percussion, Greg games, you know. Oh, yeah. So, um, again, I... I tried to remember to make my own luck and and to do a lot of listening and to do my best to fit in and and do what was uh, asked of me, but also trying to contribute. So as time went on, and there's a long story to be told, but let's just uh, go a little fast forward. Uh, Greg decided he would like to uh, stay at home more, produce records, be in the L.A. area, do sessions, and he resigned, uh, you know, very amicably. And Eric came to me and he said, listen, uh, Greg's decided he doesn't, he doesn't want a tour. We're going to do this unplugged show. And how do you feel about it? Do you think you'd be okay on your own? Or do you think we should uh, look for another keyboard player? And I said, Eric, you know what? If it's all the same to you, I'd, I'd just love to have it to myself for a while. And that's what happened. so... You know that gave me a chance. Uh, the gates were open. Uh, I was able to to have more of a, uh, a forefront role uh, from that on. That time on with Eric, and and it was great. I mean, the Unplugged thing is still the his best-selling record.
0: Yep. And you got the you got the show off a little bit on Alberta. A
1: little bit on Alberta and and old love. Yep. And, uh, some of the other ones. So it it was a great great experience.
0: I uh I was going through my own concert history um trying to figure out where I had seen you live and uh it, it comes down to a couple things but before I ask that I want to know um movie-wise Chuck are are there character actors that you enjoy watching no matter what the film is
1: No, sure. Yeah. I mean Yeah, I understand
0: okay because um because you know for session players i've always said have been like the character actors of the music world where you hear their stuff you like their stuff and and then after a while you hopefully recognize their look or their sound and then there's that wonderful moment when you have a, a that guy or that lady's name committed to memory and i think in at least in my life chuck you're an example of that um I got to see the uh, the Stones on the Steel Wheels tour in Indianapolis, and uh, I'm trying to remember because I know there were two. There was another keyboardist, but you were on that full tour, am I right?
1: Yeah, that's that's right. Yes, uh, Matt Clifford was uh, the other keyboardist. Okay, uh, he handled most of the
0: synthesizer type. Okay, it, so yeah, you were yeah I know. So you were you were on full of piano. So I got to see you in in Indy. There were two shows, and I was not at the one where Corey Glover of Living Color fell off the world's largest concert stage. But I was at the other show, and that was fun. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's the other thing, I guess, Chuck. Before I get into it, is you know you get people coming up to you all the time, going, "I saw you in this city with this band on that year." As far as your memory of so, is it is it more individual moments as opposed to an entire show when it comes to recollection?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, look, I don't have the strongest uh, memory in the world. And and you have to appreciate on the last tour, I tried to count up or actually somebody else had counted up uh, the amount, the number of shows since I joined the band. And it was like well over a thousand. And and so when you think about that and you think about all the rehearsals and then you think of the other artists you've worked with, I mean, there's there's no way to remember everything. But there are certainly standout moments.
0: Yeah. No doubt about it. And I think with, you know, for from an audience standpoint, if they meet you or they see you, it's, you know, for them, it's you know, meeting you. It's seconds or minutes at a moment. Um, and for you, it's the umpt- umpteenth person that you've met or seen that day. Um, I know you were I saw you in Indianapolis with Eric Clapton, because if I remember correctly, you were assigned to do the high vocal points on White Room.
1: Well, that's right. That's right. Uh, Greg used to do it when he was in the band, and uh, when, when he left, you know, Eric looked at me and said, can you do this? And I said, <laughs> well, I'll give it a shot. You, you tell me if I can do it. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, I, I got to do that bit, and, and that was a great honor for me. And, and, you know, the same occurred on this tour that we did with uh, David Gilmore yeah. uh, for Comfortably Numb. Uh, you know, he turned to me and he said, do you want to sing on this? And I thought he may may have met just to, on the choruses or whatever. And I said, sure, I'll sing. And he said, well, you do the counterpart. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, it, but that was a great honor as well.
0: I say, And when did you know that, because uh, I didn't know this until I watched the film, that, that David Gilmore was a, a big uh, a tree enthusiast?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't either until we met and, and spent time. And actually, uh, when I... We confirmed that I was going to do the tour. He put something on his website about the fact that you know I, my other life is a, a tree farmer and dedication to forestry and he and the environment and uh, that makes him my new favorite person. so that was, <laughs> that was a great compliment. And then when we got to know each other and actually I, I went to his home. Uh, Rosie and I went to his house uh, in the country. Of course, he's got more than one house, but. Uh, he has a beautiful place in the country, in England, and boy, he he's just manicured it. And he has some beautiful cherry trees and other trees that he's planted there. And he also does a bit of wood, woodworking as well, which is cool.
0: I was about to say, I, I, they're in the documentary, uh, Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man. There's I had never seen this before, but I knew I'd heard of him, but we get to see you do a, a controlled burn. How much training does that take? Yep.
1: Well, you know, you have to know what you're doing, and and, um, there's so many aspects to it. Just for instance, you have to understand how much moisture is in the ground or not, how much litter is on the ground, uh, what the wind speed and direction is, what the relative humidity is. What you don't want to do is is burn when the humidity is very low because things are dry. They can crisp up and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, heat up very quickly. Um, it, there is an art to it, and it's, it, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, <laughs> and it does take training. So, uh, but at this juncture, you know, I've done it quite a lot. I do it every year on our place, and uh, it, it can be an, an extremely effective uh, tool.
0: Um. Have you heard of? Are you familiar with the the Music Maker Relief Foundation?
1: Um, vaguely.
0: Okay, it's it's an organization out in the in the Carolinas, but they just put out an uh, back in 2020 they put out an album and a book called Hanging Tree Guitars, and it's a gentleman who makes guitars out of trees that were actually used for lynchings back in the 20th century.
1: Oh my goodness! No, I, I didn't know that about them. Yeah, well, that's interesting.
0: If you get a chance, look for that. Um, something else I yeah. al- some- I'm sorry. Something else I didn't know was when there's the, the, the um, bringing Rosie back into the conversation. I loved you two strolling around Paris. That could be an extra short film in and of itself, or or a travel log. But <laughs> but also fi- you finding out that uh, I didn't know that that all the trees in Paris are documented. I, who does that job?
1: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, Paris is known um, as the city of lights, and it certainly is, but. Uh, it has a great history of looking after its trees, you know, even through the days of the kings and queens. And um, it, it, and they are very meticulous about it. And everything is documented. Every tree in the city limits is documented uh, and looked after. And, and you know, if, if uh, something shows up with a bit of disease or uh, a tree dies from natural causes or from other causes, you know, they, they're very quick to remove it and, and to replace it. Um, you know, not too many cities in the world are that dedicated uh, to their trees, so it's pretty special.
0: Exactly. Um, jumping back, uh, you're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org, talking with Chuck Lavelle. And by the way, um, when did Level become Lavelle in your mind?
1: <laughs> well, here's the deal. I grew up as a Level <laughs> um, a lot of people that spell my name, uh, my last name, that way pronounce it level. Uh, some, some do not. But here's the deal. So when I joined the Armour Brothers band, you know, Greg was a very shy person. He didn't really like doing interviews. Uh, Vicky sort of shunned them as well. But as the band became, you know, ever popular uh, and we were requested to do radio interviews, especially. I'd go on air, you know, they'd say, well, Chuck will do it, and, you know, you go do it, it's okay. And, and I'd go on the air, and the guy would look at my name and say, well, I'm here with Chuck Lavelle. And I came to prefer that pr- pronunciation. The actual derivative of the name is Lavelle of the village. Hmm. And uh, so it, it it got twisted and turned through the centuries to Level or Lavelle, but, uh, you know, I prefer Lavelle.
0: That's good. Well, here in Indianapolis, uh, we had uh, the great blues mandolin player Yank Rochelle, and uh, and it, there were times, it, even in his own songs, that he would refer to himself as Rachel or Rochelle, and I finally went to his... Years ago, I went to his granddaughter, and I said, which pronunciation is it? And she her answer was, if you're from uh, the North it's Rochelle. If you're from the South, it's Rachel. Either way, you're still talking about him.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, the same person, no matter how you pronounce it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, also in the film, I love the fact that I think it's your daughter that refers to you as the Forrest Gump of classic rock.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a surprise to me. Uh, it was actually um, her brother-in-law, who was the brother of my son-in-law, uh, that made that comment and it stuck with Amy and, you know, she used it on the camera and, and I thought, well, that's, you know, and, and I've had a lot of comments from people that have seen the film that say that's a standout line. And so I don't mind it.
0: No, I think it's, a, it's like a, well, I've, I mentioned before how the, the story of uh, the story, the three stories in the documentary are rooted like a tree. I also think of those great um, band tree posters that intertwine with one another. And I'm you know, you have a, you have a very crooked path, I'm sure, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, you know, look, it, it's just been a blessing, Matthew. Uh, I, uh, and, and, and still going strong, you know, I can't wait to get past this COVID era when yep. we can all go work again. I miss doing my solo shows. I miss uh, do, doing shows with my band. Uh, uh, certainly miss my British brethren. And, uh, you know who knows when this thing is going to clear up the vaccines are out there now i've had my second shot thank heavens and Rose Lane has and so listen we're our first move is to go see family that we haven't seen in uh, over a year now uh grandchildren and, and and so we're excited about that but i don't think it's going to be all that much longer maybe the fall it depends on how fast these vaccinations circulate and Uh, how fast people get comfortable with going into stadiums and big arenas again.
0: Yep, absolutely. So, but for the time being, you can check out Chuck Lavelle, the Tree Man. It's available on many streaming uh, services. Um, I, uh, like I said, I got to see it last week and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And by the way, I I know we talked before uh, I started rolling tape, but I but I have to tell you between seeing you with the Stones in 1989, and I was reminded fairly quickly that. Um, in in one of the first albums I bought in the '90s and became one of the most important albums for me in my college years was the Black Crow's album "Shake Your Money Maker," which which you were all over.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think didn't that album just have an anniversary of some type?
0: They're know? doing a reissue. Yeah. Oh God. And, 40th,
1: uh, maybe. Oh my. 30th.
0: Heavens, oh, no, 30th, 30th. Um, but but there was. Okay, I feel
1: better now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for correcting. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're, you're you're a decade younger, Chuck. Um, but no, I think <laughs> I think it was Chris Robinson that said, you know, he he originally was going to have you on a couple of tunes, and then they just kept asking you to come back in. Is that does that happen quite a bit when you uh, when you go to the studio?
1: Well, it certainly did on that record. Uh, George Draculius was the producer, and he contacted me and said, look, there's this Atlanta band. Uh, they were actually called Mr. Crow's Garden at the time. And uh, we're going to do a record on them, and they you know, asked me if there's any possibility of getting you on it. And I said, well, you know, let me listen to what it is. He played me this really raw, raw, raw rehearsal tape. But I could hear the energy, and I could hear that they – you know, they were, they had something. So I said, yeah, man, I'd love to. And uh, then things got postponed and postponed. I was literally the next day going on tour, go flying to Europe uh, to meet up with the stones. And this was the last possible day that, you know, that we could do it. And so I went to Atlanta and, um, and it was like, well, we, there's these two songs and I uh, Let's do piano on this and organ on that. Well, I do piano, and they said, "Well, that sounded great. Maybe you could put organ on that too." You know, okay. <laughs> well, there's organ on this one, and maybe you could put piano on. Yeah, and uh, well, we got this. Other song. How much time you got? So it it wound up being you know more than half the record. But listen, I love those guys, and I love the music. Chris and Rich, talented cats. Yep, uh, it was a great honor, and and you know I'm glad I was there.
0: And as, as I was saying, uh, my, between getting into the Rolling Stones at, at age 18 and then the Black Crows, that beca- that changed my music path. And, and I'm eternally grateful for that and, and for you, my friend. Thank you so much.
1: Matthew, it's been a joy. I really appreciate you. Uh... Let's do it again sometime.
0: I would like that. In fact, um, what was it? I, I mentioned before how session players are the music, certain musicians are the, the character actors of the world. I, it, as soon as I realized, I, I didn't know until the film that you also played on Drops of Jupiter. And as soon as I, I heard that, I went, oh, well, of course, that's Chuck Lavelle's piano. Why not? <laughs>
1: Oh. Well there you go, there you go. That that was a lot of fun as well. That, that's a great song.
0: Yeah, I'm I know I'm I'm delaying, I'm sorry. I, I, but um the last moment in the film where you're performing Georgia on my mind is that was that that's on your property?
1: Yes, it is, yes. Uh I have my main piano is in what we call the lodge, uh, and I go there to practice and, and Alan had this idea, you know, let's put it outdoors because it makes the connection of uh, my environmental stuff, and I said, yeah, great idea, so let's do that, and it, it was not all that far from the, um, the lodge itself, but probably 200 yards or so uh, out the back door.
0: <laughs> okay. The documentary is called Chuck Lavelle, the Tree Man. Uh, go look for it. You'll be, you'll be all the better for it.
1: Matthew, thanks again, my brother. Uh, Really, you're an easy guy to talk to. I had a great time. Uh, Thanks to all of your listeners, and uh, here's to next time.
0: That's Chuck Lavelle. You can check out his documentary, Chuck Lavelle the Tree Man, at chucklavellethetreeman.com. You can find out. You can order it on iTunes and figure out where you can watch uh, this very fine documentary. I hope you go check that out. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Okay, before we uh, grab a pencil and find out what you've been watching, I'll I'll go over a few titles that I got to watch this week. Uh one with an Indiana slant is a short documentary called Invisible Sky about a uh, plane crash that happened with a uh, opera singer and pilot uh from South Bend, Georgina Josh, and uh her parents trying to find out what actually happened in the accident. The parents are the executive producers of this film, and it's a, 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 go- a butting of heads between the family, and their lawyers, and the National Transportation Safety Board, and uh, it, it it goes through the process of what needs to be done to find the truth, and it's a good look at the finding at the process, and what happens when the system tries the C Y A. Um, this was I. I did not know this story and you get the father who is opening his soul on camera uh, also a pilot himself and what happens between what was in the report by the NTSB and the investigation to what actually happened. So it's, it's under an hour and packs a punch, and it's got an Indiana slant to Indiana, obviously, a story to it. But, uh, but also a look at uh, finding the truth, which I'm sure in 2021 we are all hoping for. So look for the documentary Invisible Sky. Also new this week is a French comedy called Keep an Eye Out and uh, it's it's <laughs> it's unique. I I dug this. It's a it's it, the main focus is a, a police officer and uh, somebody who's accused of murder although the person accused, the witness this person claims to be a witness to finding a body and uh, what happens as time goes on with this with these two people and uh, and an accident happens with a third officer, with a second officer. And uh, the film has flashbacks and is that are mixed in with with characters that are happening in the present. Um, there's an accident that happens with one of the police officers that involves a measuring triangle and his other eye. And uh, what happens with when the ghost of this character winds up in flash forwards? It's it's a Christopher Nolan film, but easier to follow, shorter, and funnier. Um, I believe uh, the I believe the AV Club referred to this, and it's got the right just weird tone. They compared it to the Saturday Night Live sketch that happens the last ten minutes of the show, where you just kind of throw it out there, and it could go off the rails and be somewhat bonkers. And and this film kind of is, but I'm able to follow it, like I said, when it comes to time travel. This was e- an easier watch than, uh, say, Tenet. So, uh, plus there's some fun fa- flashback that brings new meaning to the term, you see what I mean. Um, and it's got some nice twists along the way. It's fairly short. The credits start, it's 73 minutes with credits. Film ends at 65 minutes. It's a It's a quick smart odd romp and uh, and so look for it and it's something we need when we're something looking for something off the beaten path so look for keep an eye out which is now out available um I I found a film that I had heard about. But I'd never seen. And this is and anytime I can uh, see films that are directed by John Huston, there's only a handful that I've not gotten to. And this is one of his later ones that kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um, this is uh, I believe the film he did before Annie, which many say is the worst John Huston film or John Hughes, the worst John Houston film. Uh this isn't this isn't the worst, but it's kind of low level. Um, low level, John Houston. It's a thriller from 1980, I should say, called Phobia, and it stars Paul Michael Glazer. This is the f- big film he did after uh, Starsky and Hutch. A Canadian production of uh, a psychologist who uses different. Uh, t- Treatments, uh, as far as having uh, patients be forced to look at their phobias via giant movie screens, and his patients start to die one by one based on their phobias, and so who there's, it's a who done it with a cold performance from uh, Paul Michael Glaser. I think he wanted to do something that was different obviously than Starsky. So, uh very uh very close to the vest and not showing a whole lot of emotion, smug at times, a lot of times. And um As I mentioned, this is a Canadian production, and so I guess there's tax. This was when they were getting tax breaks for making pictures like this. Not a lot of flashy camera work from Mr. Houston. I think he just wanted to make a straight-ahead thriller. That was it was put out by Paramount, and I uh, I think this there were a number of grown-up thrillers that were trying to do something as a response to the teenage slasher films. Uh, Eyes of Laura Mars is another one that uh, you could probably watch these two films as a double feature. And uh, there was kind of a big dumb reveal, and the the uh, this chewing of scenery was minimal, but not not maximum. So anyway, it's it's okay, um, but uh, you know there's, he's done better. I don't know if it's the worst. John, many say, like I said, it's the worst John Huston film is Annie. Um, I don't think this is as bad as that, but it's merely okay. And I expect, I, I think obviously, I speak, suspect a lot more from from somebody with like. John Houston, so there is that, and then there 's a slightly goofy film I saw from the 1950s called Ring of Fear. I had heard about this, and John Wayne was a producer on this it 's a story uh, set in a circus uh, actually clyde beatty 's own circus Clyde Beatty himself appears in this, and it 's about a a man who was working for the circus who escapes a an asylum because he 's dangerous and goes back to the circus that once fired him because he has feelings for one of the performers, the lady and uh, so a series of accidents start to happen, and is, is the the circus performers are wondering, are they cursed, or do they apparently not know that somebody had re- escaped the uh, an insane asylum? Uh, one of the act. So there's a lot of circus footage. There is. It's like a mystery science theater material uh, as far as the amount of circus footage there is in this. I think if you took out the circus footage, this film would be shorter than Keep an Eye Out. And uh, so there's a lot of time waste. And uh, one of the characters is one of the road managers of the circus, played by Pat O'Brien, who happens to be friends with writer Mickey Spillane. With Mickey Spillane playing himself, um, not quite. It's probably maybe in the same ballpark as Muhammad Ali playing himself in *The Greatest*. Um, better writer than he is an actor, but yeah, he shows up and is going to help solve the uh, mystery of are these accidents or is somebody trying? Is somebody's pulling a plot? And uh, it's just an it's just an odd 1950s film. So if you have Look, if you find it, I I happen to find find it on DVD at a very 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 low price, and now I own Ring of Fear, and uh, you could too if you look for it. So, uh, yeah, have a few hot dogs and cocktails before checking out that film. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at wfyi. dot org. All right, friends, grab a pencil. This is the time where we find out what you have been watching over the past week. And uh, we start, as usual, on email from my buddy Eric, who starts with first-time viewing of The French Connection 2 from 1975, which he refers to as a second-rate sequel. A rewatch Psycho from 1960, an essential masterpiece, as he has said before. Yes, you have. Um, And The Birds from 1963, which he dubbed as Marvelous. So that is... From Eric on email. Going over to tw- uh, Twitter, we have uh Lou Harry writes Pirates of Penzance, Lost City of Z, and that Disney Squirrel movie. Carrie writes Young Frankenstein. Uh Chris Lloyd writes Busy Week, the US United States versus Billy Holiday. Uh, X-Men 2, X-Men Days of Future Past, My Salinger Year, The SpongeBob Movie, Sponge on the Run, Raya and the Last Dragon, and West Michigan. Um, that one I can't read. Okay, so that's happening over there. Going back over to Facebook, uh, Joe writes, Charlie Wilson's War, outstanding. Yeah, I, I, I'm i glad I got to revisit that. That's a favorite film of a... Uh, get regular guest Abdul Kim Shabazz and I remember years and years ago he got on my case about uh not liking it as much as he did. And I I revisited it and uh yeah it's it's very good. Still not a, not crazy about Julia Roberts in that film, but still pretty good. Uh David Mose David writes uh Mama with Penelope Cruz and I wrote the smart act remark when you write name of film with name of actor and I just wrote, I wish I could watch any film with Penelope Cruz. Thank you, David. Uh, Carrie writes, Guys and Dolls, Jane Eyre, and the Peter Sellers episode of The Muppet Show. Uh, Steven writes, Nomadland. That's, oh, this is our own Stephen Stolen. Land. Yes, I watched a film. Thank you, Steven. Uh, Stolen Moments, Saturday nights, Sunday nights at 6 and Tuesday nights at 8 here on WFYI. Uh, James writes The Ghost from 1963 and Horrors of Spider Island from 1960. Todd writes Godzilla Final Wars. Marshall writes Nomad Land, amazing. Mason writes Zoo. Uh, Adam writes I Watched My Favorite Year Again, still awesome. This time I noticed it's Gloria Stewart playing the wife that Swan dances with at the Stork Club. Yeah, Adam, it took it took a few viewings it was probably after, obviously the first time I watched my favorite year after Titanic, and I realized, oh, hey, it's her. So uh, glad you got to watch that. Yeah, I that that's one I can plop in anytime and still enjoy. Stephen writes, we finally saw Nomadland in a cinema, so very cool, Stephen, and Julie, same last name, different, not related. Uh, Frances McDormand is a treasure. Uh, Jared writes, Star Wars Episode One. When Will I Ever Learn? Uh, the Last Witch Hunter, Better Than I Expected, and One Night in Miami. Pat writes, Nomadland and Judas and the Black Messiah. Sean writes, Nomadland. Uh, Mark writes, The Man in the High Castle. And then says, uh, yeah, thank you, Mark, appreciate that. Um, Doug writes, Pippin, 1981 Canadian Television, Cats, The United States vs. Billie Holiday, and the first two episodes of Alan versus Pharaoh. Um, Andy writes, accidentally watched The Dead Don't Die a second time. Still a waste of time, talent, and millions of dollars. <laughs> um, David chiming in, I liked it, wasn't brilliant, but I found it fun. Uh, Dustin writes, The Palm Beach Story, Adam's Rib, T for Two, Father of the Bride, Father's Little Dividend, The Manchurian Candidate, and Thelma Louise. David writes Brain Candy, The Battle of Britain, One Night in Miami, and Tombstone. Michelle writes Burnt, 9 to 5, what a classic, and then been on YouTube this week. Uh, Frankie writes The Conjuring, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, Crimes of Grindelwald, and Gangs of New York. It's been a week. I'm, I'm sure it has there, Frankie. Uh, John writes Inside Out and Mary Poppins. Daniel writes A New Leaf. Peggy Sue got married. Fahrenheit eleven nine. The grass is greener. Three came home. Made you look. The Black Swan. That's the Tyrone Power, not the other one. Uh, Dark Mirror. The Man in the Attic. Nymphomaniac. Cry Wolf. The Snoop Sisters. Uh, Lifeboat. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Blythe Spirit, that's the most recent one with Judy Dench, and The Midwife with Catherine Deneuve. Um, Abby writes Stardust. It was meh, which would have been so much better with a good playlist. Uh, Jonathan writes One Night in Miami and The Brood. Mario writes The Godfather. Darren writes Suicide Squad and Tom and Jerry. Patty writes The Muppets, that's the 2011 musical, and Fingers at the Window from 1942. Jeff writes Oliver and Company and Big. Um, Joshua writes Motherless Brooklyn, a double feature of The Shining and Dr. Sleep, Cherry, Jojo Rabbit, Trial of the Chicago 7, and Irresistible. Kathy writes Dracula, Frankenstein, Interview with the Vampire, and Wild Hogs. Michael writes The United States vs. Billy Holiday, Dr. Strangelove, Cool Hand Luke, and Paris, Texas. Um, Joe writes, Joe Shearer, Tom and Jerry, The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, My Bloody Valentine, the original one, and The United States vs. Billie Holiday. Uh, Carrie writes, The Vow, didn't know it was a true story until the end. Spoiler alert. No, it's fine. Uh, Austin writes, The Stranger, The Blue Dahlia, Cherry, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and The Killers. Michael writes, Goon. Jeff writes, Nomadland and Mank. Sam writes, Moxie, The Fugitive, Tommy Boy, and American Teen. Jared writes, working on Days of Heaven at the moment, it's a visual wonder. Uh, Ben writes, not sure why, but I watched Batman vs. Superman. I would not suggest repeating my mistake. Um, Okay, Ben. Uh, Britt writes, Oceans 12, Oceans 13, The Dig, The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, The Trial of the Chicago 7... American Murder, The Family Next Door, and Hunger Games. Michelle writes, uh, Return of the King and Hunt for the Wilder People. Robin writes, In the Realms of the Unreal. Uh, Jed writes, Finally watched Willy's Wonderland. I felt it could have had more potential, especially with the $5 million budget. Still worth a watch, in my opinion. Nick Cage was great, as always. Um, Joe writes, More like a series, Marvel's, Marvel's WandaVision. Uh, Nick writes, Let's Get Harry, The Train, There You Go, Capricorn One, The Wind and the Lion, Coming to America, and Coming to America, The SpongeBob Movie, Sponge on the Run. Um, Dylan writes, I've been introducing Julie to some cult classics Army of Darkness, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and The Sinful Dwarf. I can't even begin to describe this Danish oddity from 1973 in any way that could even come close to conveying what it's like to watch. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And then writes Julie, thoughts. Well, Julie chimes in. uh, As we've discussed, Dylan, John Waters said it best, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not necessary to feel good after you've watched a movie. And this one, you'll feel unclean for days later. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But... Um, okay. Well, here we go. Uh, But really, Matthew, I think there is genuine value in these films, and even more so when you do the deep dive afterwards. Dylan and I both have a pachant, pachant, oh gosh, for scouring the interwebs for the backstory behind the scenes. We're already now, and some info that puts entirely new light on the film. Not to mention, you have, uh, you see where more lauded and mainstream fairstool slash borrow was inspired by the schlock. It's wonderful, terrible, brilliant stuff on so many levels. I loved it. And then she ends with, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. You're welcome. Uh, Jay writes, last night we watched my dinner with Hervé. Oh, really well done. Really good acting by Peter Dinklage. We really enjoyed it. I need to check that out. Um, Taylor writes, the big chill, the big sleep, the Mitchum version. And Taylor, I'm with you. I I, I need to rewatch that one. I watched Farewell, My Lovely the uh, Robert Mitchum version and really, really like that. It's been a long time. Uh never forget, friends, Robert Mitchum in the seventies, really good run. Check out his IMDB from that decade. Um, back to Taylor's list. The Front, The Thin Man, Hobbs and Shaw, and The Blind Side. Jim writes Son of Rambo. Craig writes Minari. Dave writes Welcome to Marwin. Strange film, but good. Uh Julie <laughs> Julie's so funny. She has, do documentaries count? Yes saw Made You Look, about an $80 million art scam. Very interesting and good. Um, Robert writes, and I I apologize if I'm butchering the titles. Reading is a skill, friends. Uh, Quaidon, Shri 420, now Voyager, 40 Guns, I have that on Blu-ray, Palm Springs, The Lady Eve, twice, way to go Robert, uh, Palm Beach Story, Preston Sturges, The Rise and Fall of an American Dreamer, and last... And certainly least sadly, the United States versus Billie Holiday. Uh, Don writes Nomad Land and United States versus Billie Holiday. Um, oh, Kim. Kim writes, much to our distress, we watched Car Wash. What a debacle. Oh, no. No, 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 Kim. We're, we're going to talk soon. Uh, Kevin writes Fast Color on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Andy wrote, Andy has a picture with his uh, post basically saying, I haven't seen this one, but it's now on my list, and it's the film With Girls in Prison. Thank you, Andy. That's a that's a unique genre there. Uh Joe writes nonstop, Railroad Man, Longmire, season one, The Muppets Season One, and Mad About You season five. Um Anthony uh late night Anthony writes Late Night, Lost City of Z, Into the Wild, The Water Boy. The time, of our, the time of Their Lives, Lone Star, and I Care A Lot. I'm glad you got to see Lone Star, Anthony. That's cool. Um, David writes Soul, Quigley Down Under, and The Expendables 2. Um, Chloe writes Promising Young Woman and Clueless. Now, that's a double feature. Uh, RJ writes Words and Pictures. Um, Rebecca writes War Dogs, I Care A Lot, Land," and Hunt for the Wilder People. Andrew writes Winter Soldier, Doctor Strange, and Casino. Uh, J.R. writes The Punk Singer. Linda writes I Care A Lot. Amanda writes Pieces of a Woman. Andrew writes Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Horse Soldiers. Um, Channing writes Kentucky Fried Movie and Zadowichi Meets Yojimbo. Ray writes uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, oh, thanks, Sean. Sean writes, Walking the Dead and Zachariah. Zachariah was on account of your post. Yep, Rock Western, young Don Johnson, young uh, Joe Rubenstein, and Country Joe and the Fish and the James Gang. That's, uh, hope you had some, hope you had some liquid and some food to go with that one, Sean. Thanks. Uh, Beth writes, Frozen 2, again, Toddler plus pandemic equals I am now an expert. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, Julia writes the remake of The Parent Trap, 1998, Hollywood Canteen, and You Only Live Twice. Uh, Carrie writes, one of my all-time favorites, Logan's Run and The Little Things and Street Kings. Jeffrey writes, uh, Blade Runner 2049. Susan writes, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Soci- Pie Society. Sorry. Uh, Todd writes, Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. David writes, uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music and The Little Things. Terry writes, uh N- Night of the Hunter for the unteenth rewatch. Pretty much a permanent presence in my top favorite 20 film 25 films of all time at this moment, and probably higher. Thank you, Terry. Terry also saw The Gates, uh, The Ogre, Diplomacy, and Picnic at Hanging Rock. The film, not the miniseries. Uh Mulveen writes, uh, Clooney Brown, 1946, Jennifer Jones and Charles Boyer. They don't make them like this anymore. Uh, Andrea writes, there's no I in threesome. That's a title, friends, not a fact. Well, anyway. Uh, Kathleen writes, let him go. Phil writes, Judy and the Molly Maguires. Uh, Jan writes, always, sometimes, never. Chris writes, Tropic Thunder. Discuss. I- I've seen it. Yeah, we know what happens. Sorry, Chris. Uh, Keith writes, uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday. Um... Michaela writes, A Woman Under the Influence and Wings of Desire. Now, Michaela and I did a show together, so I had to ask. This was, her. It was her I believe, her first Cassavetes film. Uh, one of my new favorites, My Heart Ached the Whole Time, one of those that makes you forget, it's someone acting in front of a camera. Yeah, John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk have that ability. And finally, Dave writes, Dave, Days of Wine and Roses, The Man from Snowy River, Groundhog Day, and Marshall. And there you go, friends. That's what you've been watching. Uh, just another note over at IU Cinema, running through uh, March 10th, you have uh, uh, Janine Dealman, 23, Quatu Commerce, and 1080 Bruels. Um, running through March 17th is virtual, of course, Ganja and Hess. I am hopefully going to get on that this week. Um, Tuesday, March 9th at 7 o'clock, a special virtual event of Invisible Adversaries from 1977, Uh, Wednesday, March 10th through Wednesday, March 24th, multiple maniacs for you fans of John Waters, Um, Tuesday, March 11th, a special virtual event at 7 o'clock, Queen of Hearts, Audrey Flack, Wednesday, March 17th through uh, Wednesday, March 31st, Daughters of the Dust from 1991. A uh, special virtual event on Tuesday, March 23rd at 7 p.m., Room at the Top from 1959. And on Thursday, uh, March 25th, a special virtual event at 7 o'clock, The Donut King. All of that is happening at IU Cinema. You can go to cinema.indiana.edu.upcoming films and index. So there you go. All right, friends, some words to live by.
1: Silent Breed is people!
0: Zardoz has has spoken. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. There's plenty out there. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're staying sane. Hope you're being good to one another. And hopefully you're checking out some movies that are new, or at least new to you, as well as falling back on old favorites. Um, Next week, Netta Ulibi from NPR will be a guest on the show. I don't get her on the show enough, and I don't get enough uh, quality time with Netta Ulibi, so that'll be fun. We're going to end this week's show with a little audio tribute to writer, director, humorous, actor at times, Tony Hendra, who passed away this week. Yeah, interesting timing that he passed away the same week as the anniversary of the release of the film Spinal Tap, where he is best known as manager Ian Faith. So here's a couple snippets of Tony Hendra as Ian Faith, and uh, we'll uh, I'll chat and rattle off titles to you next week. Take care, everybody. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film podcast here at WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.
1: M-Tap toured America. They were uh, booked into 10,000-seat arenas and 15,000-seat venues. And it seems that now, on the current tour, they are being booked into 1,200-seat arenas, 1,500-seat arenas. And uh, I was just wondering, does this mean the, the popularity of the group is waning? Oh no, 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 not at all. I, I, I just think that the, uh, that their appeal is becoming more selective. Now, I noticed this here, you've got this cricket bat here. In play? Um, no, I carry this uh, partly out of, uh, I don't know, sort of, sort of, uh, uh, I, I suppose, uh, what's the word? Affectation? Um, yes, I mean, it's it's a it's a kind of totemistic thing, mm. you know, but uh, to be quite frank with you, it's come in useful in a couple of situations. Oh. Certainly in the uh, topsy-turvy world of heavy rock, having a good, solid piece of wood in your hand is quite often
0: useful. Mhm. I can't believe you let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. What when I... parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get her oh, ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs> we'll do it live. Okay. We'll, no. we'll do it
1: live!